Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Justin Legg. And normally I like to do a little bumper at the beginning. We don't have all the time in the world with Justin, so we need to jump right in. Justin has led a life of immense adventure, and it is a real privilege to have him come and join us today. His adventure started at the Naval Academy, subsequently as a Navy SEAL. Following that, he was diagnosed with acute leukemia, survived leukemia after going through chemo radiation, bone marrow transplantation followed by the need for a double lung transplant. So we talk about lots of things on Explore the Space. We talk about overcoming fear. We talk about dealing with challenges. We talk about the interface between medicine and society. And we talk about getting out on the sharp edge of the human experience. We've done all those things. And Justin really kind of captures all of those motifs in one. So Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on here. I want to start right in and I want to go pretty deep right off the bat. All right, let's do it. When we look at all of the different things that you've been through, as a physician, I've seen some of them. Obviously, your experiences in the military, I haven't. But there's one vein that connects a lot of them, and it's a vein around feeling afraid, feeling fear, and how to deal with it. You have been through so many different experiences where fear would be a huge driver of behavior, be it fight, be it flight. As you've gone through all of these things over the last decades of your life, how have you, first of all, just conceptualized the idea of fear? Fear has been, uh, uh, I guess, a different idea to me. Having been a SEAL, you know, we learned to do a lot of dangerous things that, mo- that would just scare the living daylights out of most people, and we have to do it on a regular basis. So managing fear... Uh, became a very normal part of every day for me. And when I got to the point where I was finally diagnosed with leukemia, originally I wasn't fearful at all. To me, it was just something else to beat. When I got to the point uh, after the bone marrow transplant, after the graft versus host kicked in and started sending me sliding downhill, at one point I woke up out of a 13, 14 day coma to not know what the hell was going on. And that was probably the first time I I actually felt some sense of fear. Um, Not much. After the coma, I was not allowed to get out of bed for a while. I lost a third of my body weight, lost the ability to stand. And I got down to Duke University for my lung transplant, laying in bed. Several times, I would go. I was on about 30 liters of oxygen a minute, and I would go to push myself up in the bed just to get a better position in the bed. And I would get so far out of breath, I was having a very difficult time catching it. That got me fear, fearful. But I managed it or, or dealt with it in the way that I'm going to take this one step at a time, just like I did things as a SEAL. I would try to break things into chunks and take the very first thing, and that was all I focused on. 
and I try to uh, I try to tie that to the ultimate end goal of survival. And so I talk about this a lot when I do professional speaking. Is is it ties to goal setting and goal management. Um, and as you take those small chunks and you focus on just the one in front of you and tie the achievement of that small objective, whatever it is, to the overall end goal of survival, uh, it helps to manage the fear because you're not thinking of the long term. A lot of fear, I believe, comes from people looking at the insurmountability or the apparent insurmountability of a very long-term objective. If you look at Navy SEAL training, uh, about seven and a half months just for the basic stuff, and you think, God, I'm going to be cold, wet, miserable, sand in my pants, hypothermic, carrying logs, and I'm going to do this for seven months? This is terrible. There's no way I'm going to do it. And then when you look at going through leukemia, uh, you know, the chemo and radiation, you know, over 50 treatments, full-body radiation, going through bone marrow transplant. I got to go through all of that to get well. Some people may look at that whole entire thing and not be able to break that down into manageable sizes. And that the overwhelmingness of, if that's even a word, of what seems to be the entire cycle of things, I believe is what usually kicks in fear. And so if you break things down, even... I would go from you know day to day, or maybe even meal to meal, or for me, you know, when it was the bad times, it was one step at a time, and it was literally concentrating on that very next step. That next step didn't scare me. It was difficult, but it didn't scare me. And I, I think that sort of management of the obstacles in, in a mental fashion is what helped me the most to deal with the fear. Um, and that really real fear of dying out of the picture for me. I got a, scared a couple of times about the situation I was in, but I never actually had a real true fear of dying because I was just so focused on the very next thing. So for people who haven't had the opportunity when they are faced with that life pivoting moment of the test looks like you have leukemia or we recommend a transplant or whatever it may be who haven't had the opportunity to go through something like Navy SEAL training. Most of us obviously haven't. That's a, it's a tricky lever to find because it's not a skill that we've really ever had a chance to hone. And I'll be honest, when I'm working with patients in the hospital, that's something that we really focus on is let's break this extraordinarily complex picture of all the work that needs to be done in the hospital into a couple of pieces. And that's all we're going to do today. We're going to get you up and ambulate. We're going to do this medication and you're going to meet this consultant. That's more than enough. And I'm going to call your family and let's stop there. That kind of compartmentalization and focus does help to ground people, but it's not a skill that people have often had the opportunity to really hone and refine. So when someone is kind of plopped into that situation, and I'm sure you get this a lot from people who have to walk some of these difficult roads when they have that and they, and they feel that the fear coming and the, the waves look too big and the road looks too far. What are the levers that someone can pull in that moment to say, let me ground myself let me tackle this because the physician, the nurses, they may also not give them that tool and say, let's break it up. People need that resource within themselves. So where do they find it? How do they unlock it? Well, 
one of the biggest levers is, is family, friends, loved mm-hmm. ones. Um, you know, I relied a lot on my wife to just tell me to get me through the next thing to help me stay focused on that. If you're all alone with no resources, no person you can count on, that puts you in a very difficult situation. And one of the things I would suggest is if, if you have the ability to write down, you know, one or two things that you need to do, get little, a little sticky pad or a little notepad and just write down, you know, next thing, learn how to walk to the bathroom and just keep that in front of you. Keep it at your bedside. Keep it somewhere where you can see all the time. You know, I have reminders tattooed on the inside of my forearms for me to remember every day. You have to tell us what those reminders are. One says, earn your trident every day, which is a uh, saying that comes from uh, SEAL, the SEAL community. Uh, your trident is the, the badge, the gold insignia that you wear on your chest that signifies that you are a SEAL. Saying earn your trident every day means we recognize that the training you had to go through to become a SEAL was incredibly difficult and give yourself a little pat on the back for doing that, but don't sit and rest on your laurels. You got to show us every day that you deserve that. You know, and that's a reminder to myself to keep pushing every day. Do something uncomfortable. Do something one step better than you did the day before. I have you know, made myself recently. I now walk the stairs in my building every day. I'm on the fifth floor. Two flights of stairs is where I start getting out of breath. The third flight starts really hurt. Four and five are miserable. But I do it every day to remind myself that I can get through crappy situations. On the other forearm, I have, it says, no life in every breath. No as in to know, K-N-O-W. And that simply just means to me that every, you know, especially with having a lung transplant, um, is a reminder that every breath you take in or breathe out is a reminder that you are alive, that your body is functioning. Uh, Enjoy that. Uh, Stop to smell the roses. And I've literally stopped to smell the roses on the sidewalk in D.C. while everybody's walking to work and my butt's sticking out on the sidewalk, you know, (laughs) getting in the way of everybody else. Little things like that every day. It's it's the little things. It's always the little things. Uh, And again, you know, this is something I learned from SEAL training. This is something I learned before that from, you know, a life of wrestling and martial arts. The details matter. And it's doing those details every day. So for a person who gets into a situation where they're faced with uh, something like leukemia or um, uh, kidney failure, dialysis, um, difficult cases of diabetes, what have you. If you don't have anybody, well, first I would say find somebody or some people that you can lean on. Uh, Best friend, brother, sister, spouse, and ask them to help you, you know, keep yourself on track every day. Talk to each other, find out what it is you need to do today. Break it up into one or two things for right now, maybe save two, two more things for later, and ask to help keep you focused on what it is you're doing right now. If you don't have that person around, 
ask doctors, ask nurses. If, I mean, if they're willing to, you know, play a role like that. I've run into, I've been in, my wife and I have toured the U.S. through visiting hospitals. And I've run into tons of excellent nurses out there that have been very willing to help wherever they can. If it just comes down to you, visual reminders help. You know, usually there's uh, some kind of a dry erase board in patients' rooms in most hospitals where nurses will write information during the day. If you could just ask them to write your reminder if you can't get up and walk, if you can get up and walk and do it, or if it's difficult for you to get up and walk and do it, well, that's one thing better that you can do that day that help remind you that you can still do something. Get up and write something on that board. Or if you can't, if you're immobile, ask for a notepad or, or sticky notes and put them up around you somewhere to where you can see. Visual reminders, uh, to me, help a lot. I'm reflecting on what you were saying around, you know, needing an advocate, needing support and asking a nurse or asking a physician to do it. And I've, I've seen thousands of patients over, you know, my career as a hospitalist. And I have, for the most part, great relationships with my patients and their families. I've never had someone say, Mark, Dr. Shapiro, I need you to be my advocate. Will you stick up for me? It's implicit. I'm going to do it. You're my patient. And that's my responsibility as a physician. But there's some sort of barrier there. There's some sort of, even though we both know that you need it, that you need an advocate, that you need someone to stick up for you, that you need someone to say, this is going to be a challenging day, but we're going to get through it. I'm going to check on you a couple of times. You're going to call me if you need me. It's, it, it, it always goes unspoken. Why? I don't know why. I guess I've never had a problem telling people how I feel. Yeah. And like I said, to, you know, to be honest with you, I was lucky when I, when I got leukemia that I was in the shape that I was in. You know, I, I could get up and run 10 miles in a little bit over an hour and I was 200 pounds, you know, I'm bulky and, you know, I could throw 250 pounds over my head without really thinking about it, swim miles. My leukemia situation was fairly easy for me compared to what other people have to deal with. Um, as I went through more and more medical situations, I, I got to the point where I thought about this um, in the context of, of a military officer. I ultimately make the decisions what go on in my body or not. You know, doctors, you know, and maybe you may not like to hear this as a physician, but you can tell me what you think the best thing is for me and what you will absolutely will not do, but I make the decision if it happens to me. You are 100% correct, and I would support that till the end. We are, the whole goal is to be a high-performing team like any other where we discuss options, process complex issues, and make a sound decision that in the end, the patient says, yes, this is the path. Let's do this. And we do it. You know, I've done that several times, even with things as small as, you know, the dose of blood, pre blood pressure medication that I need. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've told doctors, no, I don't think I need that much, or I think I need more of that. And, and I believe the more that you talk to your doctor about what's going on, the more you pay attention to what's going on, the 
better relationship you can develop with doctors to the point where they put trust in your recommendations because ultimately no one knows your body better than you do as far as how you feel and how you react to things. So this is a great place for us to change lanes in this discussion a little bit. I think that you oftentimes will get asked about things to help people who are now patients, to help people who have gotten a grave diagnosis, to help people who have been challenged. I want to pivot a little bit. I want you to help me as a physician and help my colleagues around the United States and around the world who are physicians whose intentions are good, who want to do the best that they can, who want to communicate well, who want that powerful connection with their patients. I spend a lot of time doing coaching and teaching around physician-patient communication, team building, these sorts of things. We still struggle at it. We are learning how to teach it. We are learning how to learn it. We're learning how to deploy it. Physicians oftentimes are alpha dogs and don't necessarily take feedback very well. And when patients push back a little bit, hey, that's a little too much blood pressure medication. Often it will rock that physician to their core. Uh, well, I'm supposed to be the voice. Where are, help us guide the physicians that are listening, the nurses that are listening, the people that are going to be the, the guides on these long journeys to access well, that, just to first start that conversation. Well, so I, I think, you know, one of the things physicians can do is, you know, ask the patient how much of you know, the medical science that they do understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told the physicians flat out, you know, talk to me like I'm another doctor. Um, because I had studied it well. I had, you know, good foundations in, in chemistry and organic chemistry um, and just private study. So I started to do my best to develop a report with the physicians that I know what the heck I'm talking about and I understand everything you're saying. Um, from the physician side of it, I would say, you know, ask the patients how much they do understand. Um, if I know sometimes your schedules get crunched when you're in, you know, in clinic for a day and you have only seven open slots, but you have 12 patients booked for that day. Um, time is of the essence. Um, so be concise. Get straight to the point. Uh, I know everybody likes to say, hey, how are you? How are you doing? And that's important too, especially you know, in, the, in the first several visits. But really get to know how much your patient understands. Um, and I think you'll be surprised you know, with access to medical information uh, on the internet. You have to be careful because some people will get on Google. They'll Google, <laughs> they'll Google one thing and now they're an expert. Dr. Google, yep. Um, and guilty of that myself. <laughs> um, but I think you'd be surprised um, yeah. how much patients really do understand when you start talking science with them. Um, if you can develop a rapport where you understand how much they understand, I think that gives you a little bit more confidence as a physician that you know your, your patient understands. And, you know, I guess make it a priority or try to try to make it a priority for that patient to really pay attention to what's going on with their body. Um, I think regular exercise, even if it's just walking or if you, if you can't walk, trying to lift your arms and legs, um, to whatever degree you can, 
some kind of physical exercise on a daily basis helps patients understand what's going on with their body. Uh, for me, especially, I mean, having you know, a respiratory system that doesn't function properly, exercise is key for me. Because any change in my, you know, in my pulmonary function, I'm going to notice right away if I'm exercising on a regular basis. So you want people to be finely in tune with what's happening so that when there's a change, when the thermostat twitches, they can recognize it, identify it, know how to act on it. Right. And that's a big ask. It's a big ask. It is. Because a lot of people just don't have time for that in their lives. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's, do you have time to be alive and get better? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I, I guess it definitely has to be different for each patient, but, um, some patients may do better with tough love like that. And for the people who are the healthcare providers, the physicians, the nurse practitioners, the nurses, the technicians, I would like, I've been looking forward to asking you this question. Healthcare professionals, physicians especially, we receive feedback a lot. We say that we want to get feedback and learn from it. We are not good at either of those things. We're not good at getting it and we're not good at hearing it and acting upon it. It comes from lots of different things. We're, we all, it's not because we're, we're bad people. Um, certainly that's not the issue, but we're not great at getting feedback. And again, there's that sort of alpha dog mentality. There's the sort of patriarchy that still exists in medicine, though I think it is fading very quickly. I would like your direct feedback. You're giving a debrief to your, to your team after a successful mission, the unvarnished truth of how are physicians doing with interacting with patients, you've interacted with more physicians than most people should ever have to. How are we doing and what are the deficits that we need to overcome? Uh, I would say by and large, I've run across excellent physicians. Whether I'm lucky or not, I don't know. Seeing as how I've had at least uh, probably a dozen and a half to two dozen attending physicians, I think I'm getting a better sense of the population than most people, maybe even more than other physicians. Mm -hmm. And I've probably only had about three or four physicians that I had to tell them that they they were either no longer my physician, no longer my attending physician, or that they were no longer welcome in my hospital room. I think, and and by and large, I think nurses are, are doing great. One thing to me that I, I noticed after having had a, well over 100 nurses, I would assume, probably several hundred nurses, you know, as they rotate through on shifts and, you know, I'm stuck there for 73 days. I see a lot of nurses where their, well, their physical appearance or their actions or, or their attitudes don't bode well for what they do. Like, so I saw a, I had a respiratory therapist that was obviously extremely overweight and did not exercise at all. And that's fine for you if that's what you want to do. But 
when you're in there telling me that I need to get up and move and I need to exercise. <laughs> I looked at it as very hypocritical. Um, you know, and you know, I guess that, that's mean to say, but I don't care. You're in a profession where you're trying to help people get better and encourage them to get better, live that profession. Um, you know, I, I was in a profession of arms where we had to be in top-notch shape and we had to never slack off. And that's what I chose to do. So sometimes not slacking off was hard, but that's what I chose to do. And I accepted that. And I, so I guess it's a, a very matter of fact way of looking at it. Try to be the example that you want your patients to become. That, that to me helped a lot. Did you ever articulate that to someone? Did you ever have a physician where you had to call them out and say, I need more from you. You're smart. You're well-trained. You are the attending, but I need more from you. And this is what I need you to do. Did that ever happen? And what was the response in that situation? As far as their knowledge, there was only ever one attending physician, just in general, a military doctor who assumed that even though he was not transplant qualified in any way, uh, he assumed he knew how a prednisone taper worked, that it was a simple thing. And he did not. I was not aware of the acute nature of the very end of a prednisone taper coming down off a long course of steroids, how getting to the very end of it is the most critical part and should be the, the slowest and smallest increment reduction of medication and he screwed the pooch on it that was that i said i need a different doctor or i need to go somewhere else you and messed how, up and it hurt me and it hurt and how about in the ways that we communicate how about in the ways that healthcare professionals are communicating not just with you but the way you see them communicating with one another it's easy to forget that you know people can hear and see and the way we carry ourselves, as you mentioned, the, the look on our face, the tone of our voice, that that resonates, that matters. People pick up on it. Are those skill sets that you think, given how much expertise you have, that the professionals that are doing the work can continue to get better at are down at the bottom and have a long way to go? Where are we on that? No, I, I think, I think most of the healthcare industry or healthcare professionals, sorry, um, don't want to confuse you with, you know, big pharma or, or uh, <laughs> insurance companies or anything like that. Appreciated. <laughs> um, most of the doctors and nurses I, I've met are, are doing extremely well. Um, and I, I've been to several institutions around the country. Um, I think as far as you mentioned, uh, communicating with one another, uh, that is one thing where I have seen, uh, difficulty, uh, as far as for me, I, so dealing with my post bone marrow transplant care, um, I had doctors at the facility who performed my bone, bone marrow transplant. They were following me and it's a, an, an excellent facility. Um, they really know their stuff. They're, you know, if I said the name, you you would probably agree with 
um, their reputation. And the military doctors locally to me, and the military doctors were having a difficult time taking direction from those doctors. So the military doesn't really have very many transplant doctors at all. And the military doesn't perform very many bone marrow transplants. Uh, in most cases, I think there's only two or three hospitals that military hospitals that will even do it. Um, so they had trouble taking direction from those other doctors who really knew their stuff. Also had, I've had similar problems. I went to a civilian hospital around the DC metro area and, you know, asked them, they had a lung transplant program there. I am followed at Duke University and Duke has been my primary, you know, gatekeeper of my healthcare ever since my lung transplant. Um, I, I trust them implicitly, especially the, the few doctors that I work with on a regular basis. I was trying to ask the hospital where I was going around here if they would coordinate with them, if they would listen to some of their recommendations to start off until I got more comfortable. They weren't so happy with that and and I understand that but then again it's you know I'm the patient and then it got to an emergency situation at one point and I said you know will you please just I'm trying to tell you that you sh should not do this to me they didn't want to believe me and I was trying to ask ask them to talk to Duke University to back me up and they they wouldn't call them and it was very it was something very basic it was it was just administration of fluids and since my lung transplant i can't handle you know fluids in, in large volumes because uh, you know i guess the disconnection of the lymph system you know from the lungs to the chest wall things don't flow very well and i get a backup of fluid in my lungs and they just kept the fluids on while i was sleeping and i woke up 14 pounds heavier the next day i was not very happy so the coordination between doctors, especially if patients ask for it because it makes them more comfortable, I, I think you owe the courtesy to that patient to do that little bit of extra talking on the phone with that doc and getting to know that patient's history from the doctor who has been seeing them. That That's the one thing. If you could, you know, if I would say there's one area that's lacking, it's that getting rid of the ego. And saying, well, I'm a qualified doctor. I know how to do this. We have our established practices here. Why not ask a doctor who's been dealing with that patient for you know few years or a few months, whatever it is? How is you know what have you been doing with this patient? How have they reacted to it? Uh, what do you think they are most comfortable with? I think that you've identified two key things, as you say, the ego, the ability to look outside yourself and say. I need to solicit outside opinions. I need to get help. This is complicated and I could use some other input. But the other one, and this is a phrase that I'm sure is, is, is dear to your heart. It's that attention to detail. It's the fluids can run and it's easy to put in the order 75 mLs per hour. But as you say, over the course of 24 hours, it's a couple of liters of fluid. It's several pounds of fluid. The human body has to be able to excrete it. If you're not paying attention to how that fluid is going to be excreted, it's not going anywhere. You're just filling up the bathtub. It's that attention to detail, and it's like this for everything. It's not just medicine. 
there's fun in that in that detail oriented <clears throat> behavior too. It's satisfying when you ah I caught, I caught this thing and we we can we can fix it or you know we can we can tweak this and it makes this just that much better. But it's very difficult to do. It's very very difficult to do. You know, and I think you know the military would say it's 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 mission first. What is the mission? What needs to be done for the mission? Not what's good for me or what I would like to see done. I, I do what is best to accomplish the mission. In your case, you know, the mission is to take care of the patient as best you possibly can. Maybe you may have to eat a little bit of humble pie or you may have to ask a, another doctor for their opinion or what their recommendation is. And if they know that patient better and their recommendation runs counter to yours, then maybe you want to go bounce it off some of your colleagues and say, you know, this doctor who's been seeing him for a while said this, and let's go talk to the patient and say, you know, you know, your doctor who's been seeing you said this is, has this worked for you in the past? Patients that I've talked to had, that have had chronic problems like myself, and I've talked to quite a few of them, generally know what's going on with them and keep very close notes on what they've had and what has happened to them. Uh, and if they're married, their spouses are usually right there on the same level with it. It might be better to, you know, look at what the mission is. What are you trying to accomplish and what's the best thing for that, even if it's something that maybe may look, I may feel not so great about in one way or the other. I think that that's a very powerful tool for, for us to take forward. And speaking of going forward, obviously for you, you've been through hardship beyond parallel. You've also had great achievements that I think many would, would never dream of. You graduated from buds, part of class 234 featured in that discovery channel documentary that's available on YouTube, or you can watch it on Amazon and it's amazing. You've served in combat. You've overcome all of these unbelievably difficult diseases. How do you celebrate? What is, what is a sense of achievement? What is a sense of celebration like for you? As you, as you say, smell the roses, as you plan activities that you maybe thought you wouldn't ever get to do. What does that feel like? Waking up feels good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't actually physically feel good a lot of times. Yeah. But once I actually get out of the bed and stand up, I'm happy to be up. But part of that is having those constant physical reminders, those tattoos on the inside of my forearms, that I've read them over and over and over. Those are constant reminders to me. And that, that was the exact point of putting them where I did so that, you know, whatever I'm doing, I see them every day. You know, and sometimes I purposely roll up my sleeves just so I can look at them while I'm at work. Small, you know, treat everything as a victory. You know, when I... I get up the stairs. If I do four flights better than I did the day before, I stop for a second and say, all right, you're awesome. <laughs> okay, go do the fifth flight. <laughs> right. No credit is given until all five flights are done. But it's, you know, and that's another thing. It's uh, like anything else. Everything takes practice. And so you have to practice celebrating those little things. Um, that's interesting. You have you, to practice. You're right. If you ask my wife, she'll probably tell you that I have more bad times than I think I do because she sees all the little downsides that I go through. And I have, I try my best 
not to hold on to those, even though there's some things that, you know, I still have trouble letting go of certain things. But I try to practice those little celebrations in my head every day. Just coming back through the door at night to see my wife. I'm happy that I get to do that again every day. As you've practiced those celebrations, and then you found yourself at the top of Mount McKinley as the only double lung transplant recipient to ever climb Mount McKinley, was it different? Did it feel the same? Was it, what was that, is that celebration, that, that neurotransmitter rush, that feeling in your skin, is it the same or was it, well, this is of a huge, huge achievement and a totally different size? That that was way different. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. So just to be clear, I didn't actually make it to the summit. I made it to about thirteen thousand feet, roughly. That's um, fine. I think that we're going to call that good. <laughs> well, all right. So to make that more interesting, I only have about sixty percent of normal lung volume, and my DLCO, or the, you know, the ability of your lung membrane to diffuse oxygen into your blood is only at about 40%. So for me, every breath I take is getting, I'm only getting about a quarter to a third of the oxygen in every breath that I should be getting. You know, and having lost you know, a third of my body weight previous, to, you know, only a year before that, I lost a ton of muscle. And then I was on steroids after that, so there was no way I was really gaining back any meaningful strength making it to 13,000 feet for me was, it, it was an exercise in self-punishment. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredibly difficult. But what it did for me was help me feel like I was at least part of the man that I used to be and that that mental strength, that spirit inside was still there. And that to me is more important than anything, and it sh it really should be to everyone. Is that you know you may not have the physical capability that you desire, but the mental capability to never ever ever quit, and or even just to be able to push yourself a little bit more than you feel comfortable with, is an amazing thing. You know, when I said you know I have some things that I still haven't let go of, or some things that still bother me. Um, after cancer and the uh, bone marrow transplant, I had gotten back into shape and I rehabbed to become a SEAL platoon commander again um, after I was told that it wasn't possible. So after treatment for leukemia, you were able to rebuild all the way back to the condition needed to be an officer in the Navy SEALs? Yes. Yeah, I got back up to running about 10 miles uh, I was much slower than before, but I could still do the distance. I could still do the short distance and the times needed. I didn't quite have the upper body strength. You know, I used to be able to do a little over 30 pull-ups. I could only do about 10 or 11 at that point. But I could still do about, you know, 80, 90 push-ups. I could still do around 100 sit-ups in two minutes. And did your teammates ever take it easy on you? Did they ever let you say that that was okay, or did they just wail on you? Or somewhere in between. Uh, it was it was a mix. There, uh, a lot of the guys were like, they just thought it was awesome that I was still doing it. Of course, and that I never gave up, and and I wasn't going to let anything get in my way. And then there were guys who would 
bust my ass and be like, hey, well, that's good, LT, catch up. Come on, <laughs> keep coming, keep coming. Right. Yeah, and some of it was, you know, in the, the poking fun sense, you know, sure. just jabbing at me like, oh, come on, what happened, you know, Hollywood hero, you can't catch me anymore? <laughs> and some of it was, come on, push, we want to get you better, we want to get you stronger. And it was, you know, it was all in a positive environment. Yes. Uh, but you have to understand the SEAL teams are a, a, a different animal. And a lot of things that may seem nasty on the outside are actually fun. Just treat it as fun. But it's um, still, like you said, around finding that support network and finding those people to be your your advocates. That's part of it is, hey, you know, let's get out of bed. Let's walk. Let's Let me help you. But let's do these things. And if poking fun and humor is part of it, that's great. If being serious is what's going to get the job done, that's fine too. But it's all part of the same tool set. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky in that sense that I didn't need to ask there. Uh-huh. And that's I part of the reason I love that environment so much is that I just didn't need to ask for the support. It was there. And so the, after I became a platoon commander, like two months after it was when the whole prednisone taper fiasco happened. Um, sent me into a massive flare-up of graft-versus-host disease. My skin, literally within about three to four weeks, I was, my head was purple. And I'm not saying like, you know, my skin was dark or I looked very flushed. I looked like Barney. I came back from an obstacle course run one day and one of my guys said, hey, yo, you know, sir, you got a little too much sunblock on. You know, it's running down the side of your face. It wasn't sunblock. It was my skin sloughing off. You know, my liver enzymes, you know, my transaminases were in the thousands. You know, my GGT was up over, you know, 3,500. It, it was unbelievable. I was scratching my skin off. I was having trouble breathing. My eyes were stinging. Things were getting bad. And I fought through it for about three or four months, hoping that, you know, with a heavy dose of steroids that we could quell it and get things back to normal, but I just kept sliding downhill and I had to resign from being a platoon commander. Possibly the worst day of my life. Even worse than when they said you need lungs in, you know, two or three months or you're gonna die. That was everything I'd worked for since I was thirteen years old. And so that really had a huge mental effect on me. Um, and I, I didn't deal with it very well for a good two years before I started being a big boy about it. But after I climbed Denali, when you asked what that accomplishment felt like, for me to get up to you know almost 13,000 feet when everyone said it couldn't be done, literally the high-altitude pulmonologist who was advising the team, who was a fairly world-renowned guy when it came to that, said, okay, it's safe for you. You just you, know, you need to know when to come down. Later on, he told me he thought I was going to get a day out of base camp and turn around at 5,000 feet. He was just amazed that I made it up that far. And when I made it up that far, I felt like I could have gone a little bit farther, but there was two things that happened. Uh, one was that about 1,500 more feet up the mountain, we would come to an area where we would have to keep traveling with no stopping for about 1,000 to 1,500 meters. And I knew I couldn't do that. And I said, well, at this point, you know, mission first. 
I can't put the team at risk. It's not what I want to hear, but it's the right call. And the other part that was while we were sitting in the uh, our little kitchen that we had dug a hole in the snow, made some snow benches, and we're all sitting in there, and I coughed, and a big ball of phlegm with a little tinge of blood came out. And I was, I was like, well, I, that's not good, so... I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think at this point now I have I've proven enough. I got the first sign from my body that this wasn't good. Even though I had um, uh, Air Force pararescue men who are like you know uh, combat medics, pretty much field doctors who were following me the whole way. They were taking my blood oxygen saturation as we we're going up. Uh, at one point while I was moving, I was down to sixty nine percent. Uh, O2 sat. Your O2 sat was 69%. Yeah. And so, you know, I should have been passed out, you know, <laughs> you probably should about, not have been upright about, about 15, 20% percentage points behind that. <laughs> so I felt to me that I proved a lot at that point. Yeah. And that for me was feeling like I was really a true frogman again, because when I got, when I had to resign as a platoon commander, I was sitting around doing administration work and you know logistics and making sure the guys who are going overseas and doing great things are getting everything that they need and getting all the support it was it was watching my friends go play the super bowl while i'm sitting on the bench and getting back up to that high on denali for me was getting back in the game and scoring the winning touchdown it was just it was it was monstrous for me it, it is amazing how your life, all of our lives have these peaks and valleys. We all ride that roller coaster. Some might say your roller coaster has been more, maybe a little faster, more ups and downs than some. It's an incredible journey. And it's, it's wonderful that you're able to now let us learn from all of the different things that have happened so that those that come in touch with you and in touch with this story get to draw from it and move their lives in the direction that suits them the best so that they can also go forward and get to 13,000 feet on whatever their Denali is. So thank you so much for coming and talking about all of this. I can't imagine it's easy over and over to tell these really difficult stories and to talk about this, but your candor and your honesty is incredibly I, special. Actually, it, it gets easier every time I talk about it. And that, that's one of the reasons I do the professional speaking is, you know, at first it was, um, sort of cathartic for me and then you know i got a couple of people followed me on facebook to ask me you know about their situations and what i would suggest and they wrote me saying they they got something out of it and i did more speaking and then more people wrote to me or more people would come up to me after the event and i started realizing how many people were getting benefit out of me telling my story and that has that has been a large part of what has, to me, made everything I've gone through worth it, that I could kind of find a path for other people that maybe they couldn't find and help them get on their path. For those who want more of that story, where do we find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook at, you know, Justin Legg. You know, there, there's a, a follow me button. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, a, at Gorilla Frog. That's another story for another time. <laughs> uh, also on, on Instagram at Gorilla Frog. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. This was an amazing conversation and the lessons and the, and the, the points that you bring out are, are of vital importance. And so it's exciting to be able to put those out there so we can all start to draw from them and learn from them. So thank you. It's my pleasure, Mark. A quick postscript to this episode. I want to say thanks again to Justin, not just for coming on the show, but we had a delay from when we were able to record the episode to actually getting it to air. Justin was incredibly gracious the whole time and really appreciate that. Also want to thank all of you for waiting for us for a few months while we got our 2017 schedule ready to go. We will have more episodes coming this year, and this was a tremendous episode as well, so I hope you enjoyed it. If you did like the show, please support us on iTunes by leaving a review, and feel free to leave whatever star rating, five stars being the best, of course. We're looking forward to another big year at Explore the Space. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we will see you soon. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.